This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Monday. We are back with GI. I thought we were going to switch, but Daphne is continuing on with GI. So here we yeah, are. Yeah, we got so much left to cover. That's You're the editor-in-chief of the uh, Board Review Podcast. So. And GI is a reasonable component of the, of the test. And these are like slam dunk questions, right? Like mm-hmm. you don't want to miss the anatomy questions right mm-hmm. so anyway shall um, we? yeah we shall i mean for the people who listened to the last episode we just want to remind that we have a new page on our website for the board review podcast with ton of more flexible options for subscription mm-hmm. uh we're finally very happy that we're able to do that it was a pain in the uh you know what um beforehand because we just couldn't accommodate a lot of requests so if you felt frustrated with the subscription model on apple Podcasts or spotify then head over to the d-incubator.org and uh, go on the page that's called board review and you'll be able to find all the information there and our contact info is there if you have any issues you email us for the people who have emailed us in the past they will testify that we reply fairly reasonably quickly within a few business days (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> reasonably quickly and right for some of our international colleagues who maybe not have been able to access yep. uh, the board review then yep. if that, you're that sharing be... it this will be helpful I think. yeah all our friends in turkey who somehow apple podcast was <laughs> apple podcast was blocking sorry people in turkey i have lots of friends in turkey i have uh, we have nothing against turkish people but apple podcast and spotify somehow do um there are now other ways for you to subscribe so welcome to the incubator family well and i'm sure there are other i'm sure there's other countries i'm sure there are other communities that we don't even know they're the vocal ones who emailed me and said hey we're in turkey and somehow we're blocked off i'm like oh shit (laughs) so share with your international colleagues please (laughs) Um, And so it's not really uh, such a bad segue to go from something that stressed me out to discuss reflux. Um, (laughs) Because it stresses you out? Because it stresses the babies out? When people are stressed out, they usually, you can have some gastritis or something. All right, so we'll start then, shall we? Yeah. I'll go first. Go. (laughs) Okay, Uh, we're going to, this entire episode will be dedicated to reflux and reflux is probably not that high yield of a topic in the boards because we really don't know how to manage it but we tend to blame everything on reflux and i think that's right uh, i think to me the pitfall on the test is that you think that a lot of stuff that in the unit you might attribute to reflux reflux. actually has no evidence whatsoever to be attributed to reflux and so if a kid has apnea brady desat probably don't say reflux Right. Is it reflux? When is it reflux? When is it not reflux? We will find out right now. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's talk about the incidence. Um, the most common form of uh, gastroesophageal reflux, or GER, is really mild. It's a, it's a typical physiologic developmental process in 40 to 65% of healthy term infants. So the majority of babies have gastroesophageal reflux. Um, There's a similar incidence in preterm infants, even though we 
feel, I think that it's much higher. Now, that's in contrast to GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, which is a pathologic version of gastroesophageal reflux. And I think in anticipatory guidance of our families, of our staff, like I think this is an important distinction to make because most babies will spit up. Um, but these are some of the concerning um, features of GERD, moderate uh, or severe, in which there are complications associated with these symptoms. So uh, poor growth, pain, mucosal damage, aspiration. And this occurs in 6 to 7% of term infants and in 3 to 10% of preterm infants born less than 1,500 grams. And we've talked about this on the main podcast. We treat a lot of reflux um, and um, probably very little of it is truly pathologic. The risk factors, uh, prematurity is probably uh, is, is a risk factor, um, but because of all of the associated complications of prematurity. So medications uh, like beta mimetics and methylxanthines like caffeine, um, we know uh, affects adults, but it also affects preterm infants, prolonged intubation, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, and uh, the gastric feeding tube um, all uh, increase the risk factors for um, reflux. Uh, in addition, perinatal depression, neonatal sepsis, um, anything that um, uh, decreases the tone in babies, congenital anomalies, neurologic impairment and or delay, and history of ECMO are all risk factors for reflux. It's funny because when I, when I was studying this before fellowship, I was uh -huh. like, that's odd, ECMO. And then one of my first few cases as a fellow oh, was, right. was a baby with on ECMO. And that kid ended up staying so long because for of that reflux. stupid reflux. Mm -hmm. Crazy. It's just... Uh, was it yeah. a diaphragmatic hernia? Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah. I think that's an independent risk factor uh, in and of itself, but yeah, yeah, come on. So what's the pathophysiology? So in our babies, they have short lower esophageal sphincters. They have low lower esophageal sphincter pressure, and they have prolonged lower esophageal sphincter relaxation. So all of those means that the lower esophageal sphincter just stays open. <laughs> they also have poor esophageal coordination and motility. And the clinical findings of really pathologic reflux are excessive daily episodes of emesis, regurgitation or emesis with poor weight gain, esophagitis that presents with irritability, uh, particularly postprandial. Uh, babies can have hematemesis um, from this mucosal damage. Respiratory symptoms include wheezing, recurrent aspiration, pneumonia, chronic cough, or stridor. We see some neurobehavioral symptoms, but these are kind of plus minus, right? These babies present um, with Sandifer syndrome or arching of the back, torsion of the neck, lifting of the chin, frequently for many other reasons other than reflux. Um, I mean, I think I think that actual finding is something that I've seen in questions being used as a as an indicator of reflux. So like they will mention that a baby after feeds is arching their yeah. back. So like you can really sort of say, okay, they're, they, they want me to think reflux. And mm -hmm. then they'll ask you some form of question on the topic. Yeah. So I think like, which you're is right. not usually does the baby have reflux or not? No. It's usually no. It's usually to cue you in that this is the topic we're right. addressing, and now let's see if you can figure out the question we're going to ask you about GER. That's right. Um, uh, Long-term effects, particularly oral aversion, esophageal stricture, and failure to thrive. And I think this is an important uh, point. Um, 
I think this is testable, but certainly clinically relevant. Apnea in preterm infants has been thought to be associated with reflux, but studies have not demonstrated any, any temporal relationships. So many people had hypothesized that reflux leads to apnea, but more often it's apnea um, that precedes reflux. Uh-huh. Um, research data is also conflicting about whether severe gastrotrophal re- reflux is associated with apparent life-threatening events, ALTIs, but they have a different name now. Brewies. Brewies. Brief, yeah. Brief, brief resolved, resolved unexplained un- events. That's right. The UFOs or, of neonatology. That's right. <laughs> 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 it does feel that way sometimes. Or um, a- association with uh, SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. Atypical symptoms or signs of uh, GER that warrant further evaluation, projectile vomiting, bilious emesis, always requires evaluation, hematemesis, abdominal distension, abnormal bowel sounds, diarrhea, respiratory distress, ill appearance, lethargy, and seizures. Yeah. So I think um, a few things that I wanted to mention, especially in the pathophysiology, number one is that this is not called, right? I mean, this is something that is very, very tested and they love to highlight. It is not called GERD. It is not a disease. You mentioned that they have reflux. Our patients have reflux because of their pathophysiology, which is which is their nature. And so they are just prone to having reflux. Um, Now, what's interesting is that um, we were discussing that we were discussing this that the uh, apnea can be misleading because it's a chicken or the egg. We tend to think because they have reflux and apnea, one is causing the other. When in truth, it might not even be backwards. We don't even know. Um, and I kind of kind of disagree with the statement that you read about the the brewies and the alties because I do feel like we've seen so many where a baby just like is burped but not fully and then all the milk comes up and they just choke and and so um it's not really reflux it's just an ep- an episode of refluxing or or vomiting that is causing or actual emesis right it's exactly right yeah. because they tend I mean, every event that I've seen is that the mother burps, she hears the burp, put the baby back in the crib, and then there's like one more that I was waiting to come out, and then the baby is now drowning in, in milk. Um, okay, do you should I do the diagnostic tools? Oh, please do. Oh, boy. Okay, so there's a very nice table looking at uh, the diagnostic tools and approaches to GER. I think... Um, the first the first row is something that is probably the mainstay of approach, which is empirical medical treatment, meaning you just suspect reflux and you say, well, we're just going to treat it and see if the symptoms improved. Now, what are some of the um, empirical medical treatments that we could potentially use? So we have um, we have H2 blockers. Um, I think in the book it mentions ranitidine. I think this is this is now never going to appear. Wasn't there a lot of issues with ranitidine that it was pulled off the market and all that stuff? Yes, but H2 blockers still exist. H2 blockers do still exist. Um, Then you have uh, proton pumps inhibitors like omeprazole, which basically block the gastric proton pump and acidification. And then finally, uh, another approach, uh, which I know you really like, which are prokinetic agents which is uh, try to get that milk moving, whether it is uh, erythromycin and metoclopramide, i.e. Reglan. We're using also azithromycin these days for prokinetics, so um, uh, any one of these agents. Now, all these 
options are very advantageous because they're simple. They're usually not that expensive. PPIs have been in existence for years and years and years, um, and they're non-invasive. Now, the disadvantages, which are some things that we should definitely be aware of, are that the efficacy is really something that we is a moving target that has not really been proven in the evidence. Finally, there's a lot of potential complications. Um, Ranitidine is associated with bradycardia. We know the association, the well-known association between erythromycin and pyloric stenosis. Um, and then the association between um, erythromycin and sepsis with resistant organism, cardiac dysrhythmias, um, the, uh, the uh, association between Reglan and tardive dyskinesia, extrapyramidal symptoms. Um, and then the, the big one that I think we should be aware of is the H2 blocker use associated with risk of necrotizing enterocolitis. So at the end of the day, um, the one thing that I always think of when I think of empirical treatment for, for GER is the fact that you're, you're trying to reduce the acidification of the stomach, which has a purpose, which is to prevent infections. So you should be aware that you can increase risk of both infection, whether through necrotizing enterocolitis or whether some form of gastroenteritis. Um, and that is a big, big concern in the treatment of GER. Okay, so now let's say that you don't want to do empirical treatment. What are some of the things you could do? So we have the extended esophageal pH probe monitoring. So the pH probe is exactly what it sounds like. It's a probe that's positioned in the esophagus and the pH in the, of the, the probe measures the pH that is monitored over a duration of 24 hours. It provides information about the number, the duration, and the severity of acid reflux episodes. Now, it gives you, you can calculate what's called a reflux index, which is the percentage of time that uh, the esophageal pH is less than four, and you can estimate, and it estimates the cumulative esophageal acid exposure. Now, the good thing about this method is that it's simple, there's really minimal risk. Um, it can combine with other forms of diagnostic tool, like a pneumogram, which we'll talk about. Uh, it does give you temporal relationship with other symptoms. Um, and it's helpful to assess the degree of acid suppression after pharmacotherapy. So if you are trying treatment, then you can see whether it is working. The disadvantages is that uh, you really have to make sure the probe is in a good position. And God knows that these uh, our patients love to just <laughs> move stuff around. Um, it does not evaluate for non-acid reflux. And that's a big thing, which is many many uh, individuals are of the opinion that acidity is really not the issue, as you mentioned. Right. It's mostly of an issue of lower esophageal sphincter being just patent. And so having an acid, um, a pH probe measuring acidity is going to be helpful, but not very valuable because how much acid actually is coming back up. Um, and that's what you were saying also, that the arching of the back and all that stuff, we don't see as much as for example, in older kid, the milk will take the milk. And one of the arguments against, you know, acid reducing agents. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, the milk intake may buffer the degree of acidosis for up to two hours postprandially. The infant position uh, may alter the, the reading of the probe. Um, and uh, obviously, um, if you're not trying to see the effect of testing, of, of treatment, then you might as well consider stopping your acid suppressants a few days before uh, you do the test. Other modalities of diagnosis are multi-channel intraluminal impedance monitoring. So this is actually a measure of uh, electrical resistance changes between two electrodes as liquid slash semi-solid slash gas travels from the first to the second electrode. Now, um, 
it really improves your ability to diagnose uh, GER compared to pH monitoring alone. It can, uh, because it's measuring uh, electrical resistance, you actually are not dependent on pH. So it really doesn't matter what kind of acidity you're dealing with. And you also, because it doesn't have to do with acidity and pH, you really can stay on acid suppressant medication for the purpose of this study. Now, the problem that we have with uh, the intraluminal impedance monitoring is the one that we have in neonatology as always, which is that we have limited normal values for our pediatric population. And um, there's no data also available to assess whether adding impedance monitoring changes either management or outcome. Okay, something a bit more uh, familiar to us, the upper GI series with small bowel follow-through. Um, this is, we all know what this is. You take contrast, you visualize, you, uh, you uh, watch it go down the upper GI tract uh, under fluoroscopy. Um, it evaluates the anatomy of the upper GI tract, assessing for potential strictures, especially if you have a history of NEC. That's something that we've talked about on the podcast before, or if you're concerned for pyloric stenosis or malrotation. It can assess esophageal motility because technically you're seeing liquid stuff going down the esophagus. Now, um, the one thing that is interesting is that despite the fact that this sounds like super normal, it's non-physiologic. Babies are usually uh, in a supine position, in a cold room, right? It's not like they're being fed at the bedside by their parents or by their nurse. Um, the, um, there's the, the fluoroscopy itself is just obviously we don't expose these babies to so much radiation. So it's a brief period and it's only then assessing one moment in time at lower specificity. There's a high risk of aspirating the contrast, which would not be good. And uh, there is some degree of operator dependence when it comes to the upper GI. We can also do a modified barium swallow, which is uh, observing the quality of the infant's swallowing under fluoroscopy when the infant is given different consistencies of milk. That's usually what our speech therapy team usually does for us here uh, in our unit. It's done with, um, with this, the, the pathologist and the occupational therapist. It looks for aspiration. Um, and really, this is something where if you're having concerns, after a baby is already able to tolerate feeds by mouth, obviously. If you're feeding your baby through uh, an NG that's going in the stomach, it's not really the, the right study for you. Um, all right, now we're getting into like some of the crazy stuff. Um, esophageal endoscopy and or biopsy. So obviously you put in a camera and you go in there and you visualize it. You can assess the anatomy of the GI tract. You can visualize the mucosa for ulcers, strictures. It's really helpful for esophagi esophagitis and esophageal strictures. It's very invasive. It requires sedation. There's a risk of perforation. Um, I've never heard a GI physician being excited about scoping any of our kids. It's uh... totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> you really got a strong arm then. <laughs> yeah, and even then, uh, another potential. Um, another potential modality would be nuclear scintigraphy, which is basically some technium. Uh, labeled milk that is ingested and then the infant is scanned to detect the isotope distribution in the esophagus, the stomach, and the lungs. It is useful in determining the rate of gastric emptying. It identifies non-acid reflux that the pH probe would uh, not be able to detect. It has less radiation compared to the upper GI series, but obviously the disadvantage is that it's, it has very variable sensitivity um, because it's a technique that is not really being done routinely, and so there's a lot of variation there. Um, so yeah, take that with a grain of salt. Um, finally, we can uh, the last one being mentioned is esophageal manometry, which basically measures the changes in pressure within the upper GI tract. 
It's actually very useful for assessing the esophageal motility and lower esophageal sphincter function, but it does have some technical limitation. Okay. All right, so uh, what we will finish with is uh, what are some of the available options for management. Um, so upright positioning for 30 minutes postprandial, um, and that's something that we, we tend to do. We tend to tell parents it's usually effective for only mild reflux. You can consider right lateral positioning, which basically decreases uh, emptying time but increases the number of reflux episodes. Um, just like you would do the right lateral positioning when you're trying to put an ND tube. You're trying to really get that stuff into the, <laughs> into the duodenum as fast as possible. Uh, you could consider dietary changes as, a, as an answer choice with uh, such as smaller volume, maybe more frequent feedings. You could really try to optimize the feeding. Um, you could try to thicken the feed. Uh, rice cereal is discouraged due to pre to, was discouraged due to the presence of trace arsenic. Xanthan gum-containing food thickeners uh, were linked to increased neck risk. So I have a feeling that thickening the food will never be the correct answer on the test. <laughs> um, and then you can try some of, these, uh, some of these formulas that have been designed to reduce reflux um, that are mentioned in the book. We can consider medications, as we spoke about, which have shown to be not very effective. Um, and again, H2 blockers are at associated with an increased risk of infection and also NEC. Um, I think if you have reflux and it's not really resolving through these uh, mild interventions, you should consider testing for, for cow milk allergy because of increased risk. Surgical management can be considered if it really is bad, and that means that you would consider maybe a Nissen uh, fundoplication. And we're talking about severe symptoms, not just that the baby is throwing up frequently, but throwing up so much that the caloric intake is reduced, leading to failure to thrive, maybe aspirations leading to recurrent pneumonias, esophageal bleeding, um, maybe if there's a diagnosis of like a large hiatal hernia, uh, ulcerations, things like that. I mean, we're not talking about like, oh, he's spitting up every feed, maybe we should consider surgery. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with the fundoplication, um, basically the esopho esophagogastric junction is placed within um, abdomen and fundus wrapped around the esophagus. It's 85% successful, but it does have complications, small bowel obstruction being one of them, displacement into the chest being another one, uh, wrap disruption, meaning the wrapping of the stomach around the esophagus uh, as, as another complication. And unlike a G-tube, this is not like surgeons don't go back and reverse it once reflux resolves. So this is a, this is a big decision. The prognosis of GER, uh, well, it really depends. If it's mild and uh, considered physiologic, it will uh, resolve with time. Um, and that happens in 55% of term infants by age 10 months, 81% by 18 months, and 98% by age two years, which is sort of what my mentor, or Dr. Foreman, used to say that GER is a, is a disease of the washing machine. Like You're going to have such a hard time just keep cleaning those clothes, but eventually it will go away. Now, infants with pathologic reflux um, will receive some who receive some medical treatment. Um, one to two percent will have to undergo diagnostic studies. Less than one percent actually undergo surgery, uh, and these are a category uh, of their own. All right. All right. It did. It did take us the whole episode. I know. But, but it is. 
it is such a high yield topic and and such so prime for for you just misstepping because because you yeah. you're, you're making assumptions. So I think it was good that we reviewed it. Okie dokie. All right, buddy. See you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.